Welcome to Dentistry Uncut, the stuff you wish you knew. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Dentistry Uncut. Uh, Today, Isaiah and I are joined by Dr. Robin Steely. Dr. Steely's been practicing for over uh, 30 plus years in the southwestern Michigan uh, part of the country. Um, we're very excited to have, uh, Robin as a guest, uh, Robin's approach to dentistry is, is not one that I would say is typical, um, educating patients, uh, the difference between being treated for disease and, and helping them, uh, rather focus on how to live a productive and healthy lifestyle. Uh, so with that being said, uh, Robin, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think a great place to start is is your philosophy. Um, oral fitness for life is um, your approach uh, to helping your community uh, live uh, more healthy, more productive uh, lifestyles. You mind helping us understand or maybe unpackaging that philosophy and your approach to uh, patient care? Sure. Um, I was thinking about this. I mean, we we kind of had a little preliminary run through on a few few questions and stuff before this. I've, I've kind of been thinking about it. And I think um, probably the best way to start is to maybe go back and tell you a little bit about my story. Um, yeah, why did you choose but, dentistry or did dentistry choose you? Well, it's, it was, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, I was raised in a family of teachers. Uh, my mother was a band director, an elementary band director, music teacher, helped with high school. She was actually my fifth grade band teacher. Um, and uh, for your benefit, uh, Nate, she's a graduate of IU, um, and and uh, my dad um, was an engineer by trade um, that transitioned into higher education and eventually became a dean of applied arts and sciences at our local community college. Taught engineering technology, um, you know, and he, by the way, is a graduate of Purdue. So um, of course, we had interesting basketball seasons in our house. Uh, house divided, up. right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, <clears throat> I remember I, I was I was asked by a friend of mine to write my story here in the last few days. And I've just been kind of playing with it. I remember back in fifth grade, you know, starting beginning band. Um, <clears throat> my mom asked me to play saxophone and clarinet. And um, so, you know, being the good kid, I did that. And um, then in sixth grade, she said, I need a bassoonist. So I transitioned to bassoon. Um, and then, of course, you get to high school and marching band and bassoons don't go on the marching field. And so you end up playing tuba. So, I, you know, I was in this um, rather creative environment with the arts um, growing up. And so I think, you know, music was always really important, you know, in our family and how I how I developed. But then I also had this other side of my dad that um, was very logical, engineering, math oriented um, that, that side of the equation. And I found that I loved math and science. I remember my high school physics teacher being an amazing teacher who, you know, you had to learn all these formulas and all the stuff that you learn in physics, but then he let the class be creative in their experiments. You just had the formulas to calculate. And I remember that being as one of my favorite classes in high school, you know? Um, so that brings the, that brings the creative and the logical side um, together. And so I knew since eighth grade that I wanted to go into dentistry. Why? I have no idea. I, I just thought, you know, medicine would be good. 
dentistry looked like something that would be kind of fun. There's science, there's art, there's logic, there's all kinds of stuff in it. And so that's what I was always going to do. So I was on that path, you know, heading for college and, and, and getting ready to go. <clears throat> So 1982, I got out of University of Michigan, and um, I bought my family dentist practice um, here in Battle Creek. And he was a guy that was very charismatic. Uh, we always said he could sell a freezer to an Eskimo. Um, and he would just, you know, he was very engaged in Crown and Bridge and those kinds of things. And I, I worked in his office for about three years before I went to dental school, and I learned a lot. And I went to dental school, got through, you know, wasn't the top of the class, wasn't the bottom of the class, but did pretty well. I had really good hands, really good eyes. I could make things happen. In fact, I ended up, you know, be, whether it's good or not, having the most surfaces of anybody ever in the University of Michigan to get done. I was, I finished up, you know, my, all my requirements and stuff by like Thanksgiving in my senior year. So I went looking for looking for something that I could learn something with and uh, found a case and, and got mentored by one of my restorative instructors um, on that case and, and learned a lot on it. <clears throat> so coming out of school, you know, I thought to emulate this dentist that I bought the practice from. And um, I learned a lot of um, crown and bridge, a lot of restorative techniques, and I was willing to try stuff. Um, I, I wasn't stuck in, in what I learned at school. Um, I remember a case that I inherited of an elderly gentleman from the area whom this dentist had taken down to Florida to Hill Tatum's practice. And they did a lateral wall sinus lift and put two implants in there that were um, blade vents in the sinus. <clears throat> and he restored the case. And I got the case when I bought the practice and the guy broke a screw. And not knowing anything about implants at 26 years old, I had to figure out how to get a screw out, find a new screw, you know, it, it, be creative in the thing. So kind of one thing led to another um, up into the 2000s. And as I began to really live the purpose that I was that I was doing, this whole thought process of oral fitness for life just kind of bubbled to the top. Um, I believe that people should have the choice to choose how healthy they want to be. And I should not stand in the way of that. It's their choice. It's their mouth. I've never been one to say, I own your mouth. You always own your mouth and your disease. I'm just here to be a, to be a conduit, a vessel to try and help you get past that disease. So oral fitness for life became kind of a mantra. Um, I work hard on my health. I work hard on my oral health. Um, I work hard on the things that I that are important to me, and I want people to feel the same way. And if they want to get past disease, get beyond the cause of it, and learn to control it, that's what oral fitness for life means. Um, we came out of the pandemic, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, and I have patients that now I'm just now seeing after two and three years of being away that don't really need a whole lot of care. We had done our job teaching them. They'd bought into the philosophy. They'd bought into the process and they're doing fine. So there's nothing in the whole equation that says six months is a magic number. It's, it, it's more about how you approach 
um, approach your oral health, your your uh, your bodily health, how the whole mouth uh, systemic connection works, um, those kinds of things um, in this whole philosophy of oral fitness for life. Um, so many there's to me, there's so many practices, so many people that I want to do cosmetics or I want to do, you know, um, sleep apnea or I want to do this other stuff. Well, that's great. But that kind of silos you into a specific area. Specialty is fine, but there has to be some people that are looking at the whole person. And it's not just the mouth. It's it's the mouth. It's the, the philosophy. It's the body. It's everything working together to make that happen. And so it just kind of spiraled into that. Um, and, and now it's the point that it's just how we live. You know, we, we are here to help our patients get beyond disease. The biggest thing that I can have you do in my practice is to learn what the cause of disease is and understand that and help you get past it. There's so much there to <laughs> kind of unpack, but I, I want to go back through a couple things okay. that you said. Sure. Um, first, have you ever heard of um, Donald Miller, the story brand? Have you ever heard Absolutely. of that? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I hear um, oral fitness for life, I think dentists are terrible at marketing in general, like just awful. But to me, that is very beautifully succinct as far as what you're doing. So it explains to someone early on, like, hey, this is what, you know, Dr. Seeley does. And that is very different. If I'm a patient, which, um, you know, as not being um, a DDS, right? Like I'm not going to school. It's hard to know, like, is someone good at being a dentist, right? But I right. hear that. And it's a very, very different um idea and concept than any other dentist that I've ever, you know, run across. And so to me, that would speak volumes. And the other thing that I think of is if I'm a dentist listening and I hear a lot of what you talked about, it's like, well, we want to prevent stuff versus treat stuff. Well, if I'm a dentist and my revenue is treating things and having people and spending a drill and all that stuff, I would say, well, shoot, my revenue is going out the door if I, if I'm doing that. And that seems like, well, that's a terrible way to say it, but I hear that a little bit. And that's kind of what I wonder if, if others hear so I don't, we don't need to get into it, but from my understanding, you've had a very successful practice, both from the way that you've been able to build a relationship, but also, you know, growing from a revenue and financial standpoint. So I, if you're open to going kind of that route, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of unpack that as well. So um, well, I those think are just I, thoughts. Yeah, I think Isaiah, um, as I look back on the 40 years I've been doing this, the first, you know, I remember seven years out of school being really burned out in practice. And um, I, my wife is a saint because she allowed me to do this, but I took, um, I took a year and condensed my practice to three days a week, three, three, 10 hour days, straight through seven to five and got on an airplane on a Wednesday night, flew to Lexington, Kentucky and spent a year doing oral facial pain stuff in academics with Jeff Okerson. Jeff Okerson is probably the premier guy in the world uh, to teach this stuff. And he allowed me to be in the class. And we did that for 35 weeks. Um, so I have a fellowship in oral facial pain, and I was really um, intrigued by the whole, I mean, we immersed ourselves in chronic pain patients, and, uh, you know, this is a tertiary care clinic, so it's, you get the worst of the worst, and academics, and research, and literature, and um, it was it was very fulfilling. I came back to practice, and I've practiced a different way since that, since then, and I think over time, you move I heard it described recently, and I thought this was a really interesting analogy. When we get out of school, there's a floor of dentistry. That's the basic level that you learn. You know enough not to kill anybody. 
And but there's also a ceiling, and that ceiling is movable. And as if you come into the if you go onto that floor with no agenda and are willing to be open and learn, the ceiling is as high as you want it to be. And I think as we approach a patient with no agenda, can we tell our story in such a way that it grabs them and motivates them to make changes that they can control? I think um, a, a friend of mine described it, and I think I've, I've talked to you, Nate, about this, is so many dentists operate in a disease care model. There's only three things we have to worry about, gum disease, bad bites, and decay. So they operate in this model that you have a cavity and you get a filling and then you break a tooth and you get a crown and then you lose the tooth or you, or, you know, the tooth goes bad, you get a root canal, then you lose the tooth and you get an implant and you spin this cycle, spending money and money and money until you lose your teeth. And dental insurance operates in that, in that cycle, which keeps somebody in bondage versus let's see what the cause of disease is. How do we repair anything that's damaged? How do we prevent it? Then how do we restore it back to what God gave us? And um, people don't look at that. They're, they're, you know, in my, in my estimation, 95% of the dentists are mechanics. They're just small mechanics. They just work with miniature stuff versus there's a person attached to those teeth who has goals, wants, needs, fears, pain, that you have to minister at two at the same time. So it becomes, it becomes a way to, a, a way of ministry, a way of your calling to do what you do, because it's all about how that person's behavior goes into, in, into, into their health there. Dentistry is 85% behavioral science, 15% technical. Um, the technical stuff, I can teach anybody how to do the technical stuff. It's the, how do you communicate with people and how do you, how do you engage yourself with people to get them to do what you want to, what they need to do? What's best for them? How do you help them decide what's best for them? I'm curious how uh, your practice and your team and your patients responded to this modification in philosophy. So when you, after you started undergoing the, this extensive fellowship program and, and started learning more, um, as your philosophy began to uh, change and adapt to this new philosophy and new approach, how, how did your patients and your team respond? Um, it's interesting. I had pretty much the same team for 25 years going through the process. Um, my wife was obviously a hygienist and she worked for me after our kids were, you know, got old enough to, stay with the babysitter and go to school and things like that. Her best friend from dental hygiene school was my other hygienist. And then my, my two assistants were people that I knew that had gone to assisting school at the same time, my wife. So, you know, we all kind of grew up together. I would say the first 20 years of our practice, we were more of what I would call the standard restorative practice. Production was important. We, we had a big staff, we moved along. And then I think there came a point in about 1998, 99, um, when I met Mike Schuster. And Mike Schuster kind of resonated with me in this whole philosophy of humanistic dentistry. Who's the person that's attached to the teeth? And while we were pretty successful um, 
financially and, you know, practice wise, I think we got a lot more successful when we started putting a human face on that. Um, and over the course of the years, my team shrank. You know, there's some people that, that opt in, some people opt out, um, things like that. I, I started deciding what I wanted to do, what's in my wheelhouse, where do I want to focus on that? Um, did some training with OBI and the Panky Institute. And, I mean, you kind of name the courses I've done them. Um, but started getting more, um, started developing this philosophy a lot more of health is first. And, and Dr. Schuster really helped me, helped me nail that, uh, you know, and then working with him. I mean, I had the privilege of, of working with him side by side for 15 years on new patient processes um, and teaching that and, and mentoring that and showing how that works. And um, that has really cemented it. You know, I've got a new team, a relatively new team now, um, the last five years. I mean, I lose my interview skills really fast because I don't use them. Um, but I've got a new team um, when my wife decided it was time to retire and um, Pam, our other hygienist, said at the same time, it's time to retire. It's a God moment because I had two hygienists with experience walk in the door cold calling and I hired them both. And they've been involved in the team and um, it's like from the get-go. Okay, we understand. We get it. We're here to, to help with that. We're here to learn to coach people. We're here to help people get past this disease process. And so we've gotten a lot smaller and a lot more you know, it's like I was out for a week here before Christmas, as you know, Nate, and it's like they just took over the office and made it all happen. I didn't even really worry about it. It's it's really high quality people that get it. And I just showed up this week and away we went. So, um, I, you know, I just I'm really blessed. I, I think you can develop that. Uh, you can develop that in a person, but you've got to really be clear about your purpose and your vision and your philosophy. And uh, I'm not sure there's a lot of dentists that are willing to put the time into that. Um, it's more about making money and, you know, going on, you know, I've, I've always, I've always thought, you know, people get out of school and they, you know, they get the diploma and they walk across the stage and they should also get the keys to the Mercedes. Well, I mean, that's, it doesn't work that way. You got to be willing to put in the work. And I've just been willing to do what I needed to do because I believed in that philosophy and I believed in, in, I mean, that's, that's the attitude that I've taken, you know, financially we're fine. You know, my wife and I are really clear about the money that we make and how we save and what we do. We, we don't have huge needs. We're here to serve people. And, you know, when you put that first, the money always follows, you know, Absolutely. so many people, so many people I've sat on boards at schools and things like that. And so many people, you know, you get into a budget crunch and what's the first thing you do, you start looking at expenses and you start cutting, you know, and trying, trying to make it work. Well, why do we do that? Why don't we look on the opposite side where on the revenue side and see where it is, what are we doing wrong that we don't have the revenue to, to make up for it. And, and that's always been the way I've looked, approached it. You know, I'm not going to cut my staff and, you know, go to a cheaper material and a cheaper lab. 
I'm going to figure out what we're doing wrong. So are we not communicating with the patient well? Do we not have the tools that we need to be able to coach them? Are they not understanding and getting the process? Are we trying to sell them too fast? Are we not engaging them in the, in, in the choices? When you do that, the money is not an issue. The money follows. Why do you think a lot of dentists don't want to invest and spend time with their team? Because knowing that you're at work so much of your day and you spend time with all these people that you would want to spend the time, energy, money to make sure you surround yourself with the right people. Because if I go back to the conversation, I think you said that a lot of people just kind of skip over that, like being clear and intentional on who they're working with. Um, and right now it's just, it's extremely hard to find good help. Um, I it know is, that's it's, a really big, it's really hard to issue. find good. Yeah. It's really hard to find good help, but I think I don't, number one, you're not taught anything about business in school. I mean, I can remember a one hour class, you know, and so that's something that I had to educate myself on, but I think, I think it goes back to really not clear, being able to clearly articulate your purpose and your vision for what you want and then looking for the people that fit that. A uh, really close friend of mine, um, he's retired now, but was a, was a um, high-level manager for um, a Japanese company here in our town. Um, and he taught me some techniques because he was always interviewing and hiring and doing that stuff uh, of using you know, a numbering system with some specific questions that you might look at, open-ended questions. And that has always helped me a hire just based on that. But then you go and you have to spend one-on-one -on -one time or invest, you know, in bringing in a coach or whatever it takes to have them learn your philosophy, learn how you approach patients. Um, it, it takes lots of, it takes lots of time. And I don't think guys are willing to invest that time. You know, they're, they're in a, they're in a production mode. You know, I got to produce, I got to produce, I got to produce. I'm in insurance. I'm going to write off, you know, 40%. I got to keep producing. Um, otherwise, I'm not going to make it. And that's, to me, that's just stupid. Yeah. You know? What's the, uh, if you had to pick, do you have a favorite interview question or one or two, just as you think through that you've used that you like? I, I always find that fascinating too. I think interviewing is tough. Well, I think, I, yeah, interviewing is, is really tough and we're never, nobody's ever taught about it. But I, but I, you know, I really just like to ask them, you know, what is it that they're looking for? You obviously made a phone call or you brought a resume or you did this, you know, what is it that you're looking for? The job of an interview is for me to decide if I like them, but it's also for them to decide if they like me. And if we can't get a marriage put together in that way, um, it's not going to work. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's the same process you go through with a new patient. It's, you know, tell me what you're looking for. Why did you pick up the phone and make that call? Um, what's the target, the, out, the outcome we're, we're seeking to, to make here together? How do, we, how do we put that together? What's that relationship look like? looks like? You know, if we're still together five or 10 years from now, what do you think that relationship's going to look like? And how can we, how can we now make it work, work, make it work now so that it's really good in 10 years? I've always said, you know, my... My philosophy has been when I retire or when I leave, I want my team to say this is the best job that they ever had. And now I've given them the skills and the questions to ask when they go interview somebody else because they're going to be really, really picky. And 
to me, that's a good, I mean, that's, that's the biggest gift I can give them, you know? I think that's the difference between a life's work and a job, right? Yeah, it's a, a job problem. is you right. go to, uh, you go to work, you do your eight to five and you can't wait to be done. Uh, being passionate about a life's work, uh, you're, you're much more invested in uh, not only each other, but who you're trying to serve. Right. Right. No, I, I, I agree. And, you know, anybody that thinks dentistry is an eight to five job is, you know, go find something else to do because, you know, you're really 24 seven, you own your practice. You've got lots of things to do. If you're, if you're treating patients completely under a philosophy that makes sense, you're there working in the lab, you're working on the business, you're working with your team and you're treating patients. People think that, you know, I see my colleagues that see patients four and a half days a week or four days a week, and it's eight to five or eight to six or, you know, nine to seven, whatever it is. And it's all about treating patients. I can't work that way. I'm going to see my patients three days a week. You know, that's 24 hours of patient care and I'm going to take care of them. I'm also going to have, you know, four Thursday mornings in the schedule every month. Two of those are for new patient, new patient interviews. And we do two to three of them in, in the morning. One of them is a surgery day. I don't want any hygiene there during any of those Thursdays. And one is we have no patients. There's maintenance to do on equipments. I've got stuff to do in the lab. We work on the business. We have to, we have to have meetings of the minds between, you know, hygiene, assisting me, front office, all of those people working together to make the business work. I can't do that seeing patients three and a half or four days a week. You're spending a lot of time then with a new patient. If I'm a new patient and I come into your practice, it's not you sitting next to me, I gather, uh, for 10 minutes and having small talk. Do you mind sharing with us maybe some of the things that you focus on in a a new patient interview? Um, My new patient interview, um, like I said, we do them on Thursdays. And I... um, I have an assi- one assistant who's there three days a week, but on Thursdays I have one hygienist who is also an assistant and she's my new patient advocate for that. So, so new patients are scheduled for an hour and a half. Um, the first half hour, 45 minutes, we sit in the consult room and we talk just like we're talking about philosophy right now. You know, what's the target we're trying to hit? If we don't come to an agreement on that, how will we know if we ever met it? Um, and I videotape those and I store them on my computer so I can go back and watch them to see what, you know, where could I have improved? How did I ask that question? You know, things like that. So, so we spend time talking about and trying to co-create a relationship so that we can move forward. It's as much about them deciding if I'm right and me deciding if they're right. Um, then we go, you know, with their permission to do a tour of the mouth. And, and we do it in a hygiene room. So Amber's, Amber's my assistant that day. And we, we go through, you know, a sequence that um, I've used for years, you know, as far as outside in, look at, and, and working our way through. And then I take photographs and those kinds of things. And then I turn the patient over to Amber. And it's her job 
to do the base of the pyramid, the foundation work, the gums and bone. And, and she looks at plaque scores and bleeding scores, and she develops what we call a gap plan. And that gap plan are the few things that we want them to change between now and when they have their hygiene visit, which will be after I've had a consult with them for another half hour or 40 minutes in the process. So, so the patient's really being seen for a couple hours before they have anything done. And I always go into that review process. We call it the review of findings visit or information and possibilities. I go into that process without a treatment plan. I have ideas. I've obviously kind of looked at x-rays and that kind of stuff, but it's not my plan. It's their plan. They have to help develop that and buy into it. They've already received um, a, a five or six page report from me in the mail with some, you know, 10,000 foot view pictures of their mouth, some thoughts about, you know, foundations and teeth and bites and things like that before we even get there. And so when we develop that plan, it's based on a pyramid of foundation, teeth, bite, and then general health. And so they always start at the bottom. Hygiene, they have to coach them. They have to get their plaque and bleeding scores at you know, 85 to 90% plaque-free, bleeding-free before they get my best and finest work. If they don't get them there, we'll do some composite work and we'll patch some holes and we'll kind of, you know, get them ready. But until they get there, now we can begin to talk about other issues, which might be bite stabilization, joint stabilization. You know, how are we going to restore this in a long-term way? It's, it, it, it's a, it's a process that they have to walk through. And that's how we have so much success because we go through that process. I mean, you look at, if you start looking at statistics and you guys have been around the dental field long enough, you know, people measure, you know, treatment, you know, um, treatment out there and then treatment accepted, you know, treatment talked about treatment accepted. And I don't know, Nate, you probably know the numbers better than I, but it seems like the, the acceptance rate is 35, 40% on that stuff. I look at my numbers and I'm 95, you know, wow. I get new patients. I get new patients that have come in with a, you know, quote, $3,000 treatment plan from one of the area, you know, either, private practice or corporate or whatever, I love getting those patients because, you know, a year or two from now, they may be spending 10 or 12 or $15,000 in my office. But in the process, they've maybe had three or four different exams at different stages. They've had three or four different reviews. We never move ahead till the patient understands and says, okay, I'm ready to go. You're waiting for that uh, mutual buy-in, right? And I think it's, when it's, we call it co-creation, co-discovery of the of, in the exam process, co-creation of the treatment plan, they are they are invested in that process because it's their process, not mine. I've just walked them through a logical, creative way to get them to their target, whatever that is. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it, it really falls back to a, a word that you've shared with, or a term that you've shared with me before, which is you become their oral fitness coach, right? Exactly. 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 Mm -hmm. And you can't do what you want to do if, if you're not 
like you can't do this with the traditional dental insurance model. Like this just, no. this didn't work. Right. Doesn't but work. Work you, at all. you hear this and when There's someone no code says, for this, Isaiah. yeah, I was going to say, when, when, when you talk to someone, you sit down and say, Hey, it's great that you have dental insurance. And this is kind of the, the standard model of you're going to get very, very similar treatment regardless of where you go versus this is our process this is how we build it up from here. Right. You're not going to attract everyone because some people might be like, that sounds ridiculous. There's no way I want that. And that's right. great. Exactly. And that's, that's okay. great. Yeah. 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 I mean, but a lot of people will say, yeah, that's great. I, mean, I, I, look at that. my, I look at my new patient process and I look at my, you know, my, I mean, I track my numbers just like everybody else does in, the, in their practice. I want to know where, where we stand on those things. Um, and I know that I only see four to six new patients a month, period. My new patients are booked out to July right now. And we have people that have been on a waiting list for a year and a half and they continue to wait and they're, and they're ready to go because nobody's ever talked to them about the process. You know, dental insurance is a wonderful um, benefit. It's a coupon. It's a thousand dollar coupon or a $1,500 coupon that you get. And when it's gone, it's gone and you get another one next year. Well, there is no way that you can be in a health orientation and get you know, have that pay for what you need. It's impossible. So we just explain it to a patient that way and they get it. You know, it, you go to the store and you get a do $4 off your special K. It's the same thing. No different. You know, um, and when we walk the patient through the process and we're, we're looking at the, we're looking at the, at the pyramid and the, and, and the thing, it's, it's really easy to tell a patient, we're not going to get to teeth first. You know, you don't, you don't shingle the barn when the barn's on fire. So let's put the fires out and then we'll put the shingles on, you know, it, it, it's, it, there's, there's just all kinds of little tools that patients begin to understand when you start talking to them in their language. So totally. When you, you've done a lot of work from the like leadership mentorship within dentistry, and I'm sure you've shared this with younger dentists. What's the reception typically like? Are they like, there's no way that would ever work in my, you know, area or are people receptive from a dentistry perspective of really taking this approach and going to the next level? Cause it's going to be a long-term play. This is not going to be, Hey, in, in three months, all of a sudden our business is drastically like, it's going to be a concerted effort over time. And maybe it goes back to kind of the point you made earlier. Too many people just don't want to put in the work to get there. Well, but I think what's the reception, you, you know, I, th I think, there are some, there, there's a lot of deer in the headlights looks. Um, they don't get it. And I think a lot of dentists, um, they get out of school, they either, you know, go to work for the Aspens and the Heartlands and, and, the, and the corporates and they get paid really well. And they've got so much student debt and they get addicted to that paycheck. Um, they get addicted to the patient flow from insurance. Um, and they don't think about the 40% that they're writing off at all. So, so it's all about, okay, let's advertise, let's get more, let's do this. There are some people that are ready. I mean, I have a, a, a young lady in my town that has been in insurance and she's just ready. It's driving her nuts because she's too busy and she can't do what she wants to do. Well, here's a different way. You know, there, there are a few of us around that have, that have tried this and it works but you got to come with the right attitude. I mean, I, I sit in a spear study club and I said that at one of our meetings, you know, why are you guys, why are you guys monkeying around with insurance? This is ridiculous. You know, they're, they're keeping you in bondage and they all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I think there's, I think there's more of a, um, more of a push lately. You see it on Facebook and you see it, you know, in the fee for service groups, you know, we're going to get out of insurance because insurance has got us by the, you know, what's and, you know, um, that kind of stuff, but there's specific ways you have to do to get out of it once you've been in it and you can't just send the letter and go cold turkey. And I think that scares a lot of people. They don't want to, they don't, they think their patients are going to abandon them. But if you have an offering and you have something different and they bought into that, you're not going to lose them. It just doesn't happen. You know, they say you get out of insurance, you're going to lose 50% of your practice. That's garbage. If you've done it right, if you lose 10%, I'm shocked, you know, and then all of a sudden these patients are getting healthy. You know, I have, I had a lady and she just passed away. What? A month or two ago, 98 years old, seen her for 40 years, done one crown on her in 40 years. And at 98 years old, she still did what we asked her to do. And she passed away with all of her teeth. What's not to like about that? You know? So anyways. No, that's, you know, I, I think it's important to share um, that mentorship for you has played a large role in your growth. Right. right. Uh, you mentioned some names earlier. Uh, Mike Schuster, one, one that you, um, you brought up uh, most recently. Yeah. Um, do you mind sharing with us? Um, have you always had the desire to be mentored? Um, because you're a mentor for so many younger dentists now, uh, not really younger dentists, but also dentists of any age. Um, how, how does uh, being mentored and being a, a mentor for others factor into um your desire to continue to practice dentistry? I think, you know, uh, Nate, I think um, I've kind of always approached everything in my career um, without an agenda. Um, I don't, I, I, I go to a course right now and I'm there to learn whatever they're there to teach me. You know, it's not that, I mean, I will always pick something up that I can bring back and I can, you know, meditate on that, reflect on it and figure out how to use it. Um, and there's not many courses that I haven't been to, you know, from some of the, the masters in our field. Um, so I think, I think the ability to come with no agenda in there, um, they say when the, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, I I've been blessed in that way, my entire career. I think, um, Mentorship, being a mentor, you know, has been a challenge because there are, the struggle is they're not like me, you know, it's like, hey, I come in here with, I've got no agenda. I've got stuff to share. If you're willing to listen, you know, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I don't want to see you make the same mistakes that I made, you know, and um, sometimes people have to make their own mistakes. We always went when our kids were growing up, you know, and, and they still talk about it and laugh about it. You know, we always played a game at the dinner table because we have, we have three kids. One's a dentist, in fact. Um, another one's, uh, you know, finishing up PA school and, and one's in IT. Um, but we always played a game that um, the conversation at the dinner table was always a question. You had to answer a question with a question because I wanted my kids to learn to ask questions about everything and not just make judgments. 
If they ask questions, then their curiosity is peaked and they'll go learn. And, and, um, you know, pat myself on the back. I think I've been really successful with that, doing what they're doing. I love that. I am. So there's a term that I was taught for my first mentor. It was swipe, steal with integrity and pride. So I'm going to swipe that. So we have a two and a half year old in a, uh, about a month, we'll have our second son. So um, yeah. I'm going to definitely take that, <laughs> store that in here. See, I'm pulling all kinds of good stuff away from this. So thank well, you. Well, I mean, I look, I look at, I mean, my, my, my boys are twins. They're 33. And I look at Logan, the IT guy, and he still, you know, has that two-year-old, well, why would we do this? And why do we do that? Here's the question, you know, I said, just ask the questions and then go, go figure it out. You know, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the purpose. I mean, my purpose, you know, what I live for is to be an advocate for a better way. So I'm going to look for things in how I can be more of um, more of a, a, a better way guy. How can I can make things work better? Um, and the only way I can do that is to ask a question and get involved with a human being on the other end of that to figure out where we're going. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned uh meditation and its role in in your uh in your thought process mm-hmm. um how long have you been meditating um you know my um i i have a christian worldview um i i, I don't make any bones about that i have a pretty pretty um well developed faith community that that, that I, I worship with and, and believe in philosophy and theology. Um, I think um, I've spent probably the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Um, it, it took me a little while to develop that, but as I've gotten older, it's become more and more important. My wife and I, you know, do our meditation in the evening, even when she right now is living in Salt Lake City and I'm commuting because we have a seven month old granddaughter that, you know, we're, we're helping to take care of. And, you know, we've, we've decided that that's important to us to be able to do that. So we still have our, you know, read our devotion on the phone together and, you know, say our prayers and that kind of stuff. But um, my meditation, you know, starts about three 30 in the morning um, because I have to be uh, the only time that I can go to the gym and work out is 5 a.m. And I work with a personal trainer three days a week. That keeps my back, my neck, everything working the way it's supposed to after 40 years in in this business. Um, But I start at 3.30 in the morning and I'm on my second time reading the Bible through chronologically. The stories chronologically. And it's a very interesting read to to do it that way. And then I always read something that I'm going to gain something out of you know, in that hour and 20 minutes that I have. Um, I may journal a little bit, but I've got, you know, different books that I've, that I've read through and I'm working on and um, things like that. I'm reading a book right now. I just started called Second Mountain um, by a guy named Brooks. And it's, it, it's on climbing that second, the, the analogy, climbing that second mountain in life, the first mountain being financial success and, you know, the things that we do in the first half of life, I'm in the second half of life now. And, you know, I don't have to do another crown prep or I don't have to do another something, you know, we're good. And and now it's more about meaning and success and, you know, how can I give back serving others, those kinds of things. So, I mean, there's, 
uh, you've asked me in the past, Nate, you know, what are the books that you, that you absolutely love? And, um, you know, anything by Brene Brown, I've read all of hers at least twice. She's a, she is a researcher at university of Houston on vulnerability and shame. And she is an amazing author and an amazing speaker. And, uh, uh, I remember the first book I read when I started at the Schuster Center was called A Timeless Way of Building by Christopher Alexander. That's a classic architecture book. It has nothing to do with dentistry. It's all about creativity. Um, you know, Robert Fritz's work, um, um, The Path of Least Resistance, um, any of um, Malcolm Glidewell, Outliers and some of the stuff that he, that he does. I finished one recently by uh, Todd Boltzinger called Tempered Resilience. And Boltzinger is a pastor um, and um, leadership expert at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary in San Francisco. And I, I read that book twice because there was so much stuff in it that, that I really had to work. And he uses the metaphor of, of, of a blacksmith in a forge to temper this temper the steel amazing book so you know i've studied bob proctor stuff and zig ziglar and you know some of the masters in think and grow rich and that kind of stuff um it's just kind of a wide variety of lots of stuff we robin we, is so well read <laughs> i say mean, it. <laughs> I you've, been, you've been in my office and, and you know our waiting room I figured I got so many books, I might as well build a library for my patients. So, so there's a there's a lending library in there of every book that I've had about health and disease and you know getting healthy and stuff like that. And patients check them out. You know, if they don't come back, I figure they needed it more than I did. So I'll just buy another copy. No big deal. I love that. So I you know, when, when I, I, I when I finally decide to hang it up, I don't know if I'm going to move all those, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see. You, you uh, I will let you know uh, the uh, tempered resist uh, tempered resilience uh, yeah. book is here, and I have not started yet. Full disclosure, um, you know, uh, uh, if I may, if it's if it's okay with you guys, uh, Robin sent me an excerpt from um, one of his readings not too long ago, and I really. I really gave it a lot of thought. Um, Edwin Friedman, right? Yeah. Um, on self-differentiation. Yeah. And, that came and out of read, resilience. Yeah. So um, it's a fascinating excerpt. And if I may, um, someone who has clarity about his or her own life goals and therefore someone who's less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about. I mean, someone who can be separate while still remaining connected and therefore can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. I mean, someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others and therefore be able to take the stands at the risk of displeasing. I love that. It kind of hits you between the eyes, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I, um, you know, you were talking about meditation and things like that. And, um, I ran across a video on the internet, uh, you know, and I've always, I mean, I've, I've sang in quartets, I've sang in different groups and things like that throughout my life. And I've always loved Gaither music, you know, and they're from your neck of the woods, Nate. Um, 
but I ran across a video of a guy named Whitley Phipps singing it as well with my soul. Whitley Phipps is a pastor and I think he's in the DC area, black, black, black man. But he said something in there and a, a good friend of mine who really helped cement my purpose with me, put words around it. Um, Jan Janke lost her husband just recently to COVID. She's, she's a dear friend. But I sent this to her and it made so much sense to me. And I've reflected on it a lot just about every day. And Phipps said, it is in the quiet crucible of your personal private sufferings that your noblest dreams are born. And God's greatest gifts are given in compensation for what you have been through. And I think to me, that just says, you know, we're here on this earth for a short time. We do the best that we possibly can. We serve other people. Um, we, 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 we just, we just live our lives giving to others and they'll give back to you. It's not very difficult. You just have to live that way, you know? So, so as Adele and I have, you know, contemplated transition, which is a, a whole new arena for us. Do I want to, do I really want to stay in clinical dentistry? Do I want to coach and mentor? Do I want to spend time, you know, in mission projects, you know, with skills that I have? What's that going to look like? I don't want to create the rest of my, the second half of my life by accident. You know, I want to, I want to have a say in that, even though I know my time is not mine. And um, so um, that's kind of the stuff that I'm working on right now. Uh, You know, um, I don't need to go to another course. I don't need to, I don't need to do any more technical training. Um, I tell a young lady that, that I'm mentoring out in Colorado, you know, Lauren, you got enough technical training, even though you've only been out of school eight or nine years you know enough to practice your whole career. Now it's about getting the behavioral part and that stuff down. And, and that's the point I'm at with my life. Um, the dentistry is easy. The dentistry is really easy. It's the, it's the fun part of the people skills and watching my team grow and helping them become financially independent as best I can and watching the relationships that they have with their spouses and significant others grow and develop and watching them come to work and us having fun, you know, it, 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 it's just work for me. You know, we work half time, basically we work 145, 146 days. You know, my team all gets eight or nine weeks off. You know, I want them to spend time with their families. And then I want them when we're there, I want us to be, you know, a group that really takes care of people. So the end of our huddle every day, okay, let's go serve today and let's do the best that we can. Uh, Being a servant leader is something that's learned, right? It is. And I think, and I think too, Nate, um, leadership is a word that's kind of misused a lot of time. And I think, I think what has become more important to me is authorship. I want to be an author of what my life has stood for, the legacy I want to leave and things like that. Talk to us a little bit about your mission trips. I know it plays a large part in your life. Um, we've been involved. Um, we were involved, a friend of mine um, down in Fort Wayne has um, got a group called Sonrisa Siempre. 
Um, they do dental clinics through the Lions Club in Comiagua, Honduras. Um, and so that's how we kind of first got involved. We were in, we were in Honduras for five years in the middle of the winter, which is great. You know, it's 80 degrees and sunny and, you know, and um, did trips out into the mountains and saw patients, you know, in portable units and schools and stuff like that. And um, then we had, we had actually have a standalone clinic down there as part of their lions club. That's, that's one of the largest lions club that does um, health education in the world in Comiagua. So we were involved with that for five years and, then we got involved with um, with a group out of Kenya um, called Global Villages Ministries. Um, they have they had built a home on the at the gate of the Masamara National Park in Kenya. Um, the Masamara is the um, Kenyan side of the Serengeti Plain. The Serengeti Plain is Tanzania, and so I mean you're literally within five minutes of being surrounded by elephants or giraffes or whatever in a truck. Um, so they had built a home for girls who had been abused or abandoned. Female genital mutilation is big over there, childhood marriage. Um, and an American lady had built a home and we, we were involved with them for the last five years um, supporting that. And then they do mission trips three times a year, dental, medical, and, uh, you know, everything from, the White Sands Resort on the Indian Ocean, which is really nice, and you're, you work in air conditioning, to the bush where you're camping in a tent and you hike to the next village. What's your uh, preferred? I, I love the out in the camping and then in, in, the, in the villages. Um, so we've been involved with that for the last five years. And just recently, they've broken off and formed their own trust in Kenya. And so um, three friends of mine and I took over Global Villages Ministry just like three months ago. And we're in the process of kind of revisioning that whole thing um, so that we can serve. We just had a meeting tonight with another group about partnering back in Kenya with another with another group um, that does a lot of entrepreneurship and they need medical dental stuff. Um, we want to we want to have trips available in the states, you know, outside the states. Um, so we're just in the process of of reorganizing that whole thing and putting it together. Um, I always thought in my retirement years, I'd spend a month overseas just doing whatever. Um, and that still may come to fruition, um, kind of depending on where we go, what we do. It's cool. I've got, you know, dentist friends that are Kenyan. I have dentist friends from England. Um, I have people kind of all over the world that, that I met and, you know, have become friends with and stay in touch with. And that's, I mean, it's just fun, you know, something totally different. What type of resource uh, would you suggest to uh, maybe a listener out there that would like to become more involved, but doesn't know where to start? Um, I mean, a lot of places, if you can start through your church organizations, a lot of church organizations have those kind of things. You can look up, you know, different um, mission projects. There's a project in the States, I think it's called RAM. Um, which does mission projects in the States, like in Appalachia. It's mostly medical dental. Um, they might do Indian reservations, some things like that. Um, and you can just go and do some of those things. Um, typically, some of the larger denominations may have a health ministry project someplace. There's a group, uh, 
have to think about the name. Um, I can't remember the name, um, but it's through the um, Seventh-day Adventist Men's Service Organization in the denomination. They do a huge health fair every year, someplace in the country. And I think it's in Indianapolis this year. And they do medical, dental, optometry, um, physical therapy, all kinds of stuff. Our own local church does a health fair. You know, we have it since COVID, obviously. But before that, we do a two-day health fair and have all of those services available. Some of the universities, you know, do things and you can tag along with them as a, as a mentor or a preceptor, um, adjunct faculty. Um, and then there's ministries like ours that are just out there on the internet and you just find them and you see if it matches your philosophy and see what they're doing. Um, that's kind of how we got involved with it. That's awesome. So there's lots of resources. You just gotta be willing to dig. Yeah. I, I've always talked with my wife about mission strips and I think our church has done, well, did pre COVID with like helping with business resources overseas. And I've always thought that would be the way that I would love doing that. Like talking yeah. business and just thinking about how to help other people like be entrepreneurial. I've, I've always enjoyed that. So yeah, um, my, yeah, my daughter right. got involved, got us involved in the Kenya project because she was, she was teaching high school science at, at the school that she graduated from a little Christian school. And she became the senior sponsor. You know, when she started, they were freshmen. She taught for four years. And her first thing she told her class, you know, as freshmen says, we are not going to Chicago for our senior trip. I'll just get that out of your head. So they raised they raised enough money and took eight kids to Kenya for two weeks. And she got it through all the powers that be to make it all happen. And we said, hey, if you're going to Kenya, you need sponsors. And we're in. So, awesome. you know, and so um, that's what got it kind of got us started there. And course those kids helped out and all of us just did what we professionally do you know so there's lots of resources you just got to be willing to put yourself out there and do it yep pretty cool so i'm, I'm curious you you were just talking about your daughter when we started yeah you shared that um and i'm not sure i want to say forced but you were <laughs> led to play an instrument um, I'm curious, what were the instruments that you maybe suggested that, uh, your boys and your daughter played? I'm guessing that they're all musical as well. They are, they are. Um, my mom, um, when she left the public schools and went into the private school arena, uh, you know, as, as a music educator, um, she got really involved in Battle Creek. We, we've had what's called the brass band of Battle Creek which is the premier brass band in the country. Um, they have, it was formed by two pedi uh, podiatrists actually who love brass music. And they got all of these top, top of the line players from all over the world to come to Battle Creek for two concerts a year. And it was funded by the Kellogg Foundation. They are amazing. People from England, people from universities, you know, 35 members, the best in the world. You know, Doc Severinsen has been here and played with them. You know, they're that good. Um, so she got really involved with brass music. And so um, her grandkids had to be brass players. So my daughter's a French hornist. Um, one son's a trumpet player. The other's a trombone player. Um, and then as my kids, were, as the boys were growing up and, you know, in high school, they and three of their buddies formed a Christian rock band that practiced in our basement every Sunday night. When they went to college, we really missed it. <laughs> so one of them became a drummer. The other was a bass player. And, 
they, you know, traveled around the Midwest here and there and wrote songs and did all kinds of stuff and did a recording. And then they all scattered and went their separate ways. And, um, you know, none of them play much anymore, but could pretty easily, you know. Well, as a uh, past trumpet or trumpist, uh, <laughs> I use that very loosely, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I also appreciate it. You know, I, I re- you reminded me of, um, as you well know, my son Aiden is also very musically inclined. And and uh, our uh, our baby grand is just outside of my office. Yeah. And uh, on occasion, if he gets home from school uh, and, and I have to embrace it. Yeah, uh, because um, I have a feeling that I'm going to miss it very soon as well. And yeah. so it's it's kind of nice to take a break and and listen yeah. to him pound on the keys or pound on the ivories a little bit. Yeah, we have one sitting here next to me in the living room. And I don't play it nearly enough. My daughter played it quite a bit. But we when we go down to uh, my son's in Dayton, my grandson plays a lot of piano. And so both he and his sister um, sit down and play quite a bit. And it's been fun watching them grow and learn and that kind of stuff. Well, Robin, I, I, uh, I'd like to thank you for, um, taking the time and spending sure. it with Isaiah and I, um, it's been a lot of fun. It's, uh, really exciting to learn about more about you. Um, and, um, I'm a sponge for your books. Please, <laughs> please keep sharing, uh, because I, I do really appreciate it. I, I think it's important that, um, you know, you take yeah. some time away, maybe away from what we focus on every day and, and, internally uh take time to to think deeper and um i know I don't you always me... read the, i don't always read the heavy stuff <laughs> you always share the heavy stuff with me <laughs> i always i always have one going that's kind of fun right now i'm reading um the president and the freedom fighter by brian kilmeade who's about lincoln okay. and frederick Douglass. and i always when my wife and i we love road trips because we listen to audible and she's a she's an action adventure tom clancy fan so we always listen to, you know, the 15 hour novel when we're driving someplace to, to get our minds off of everything. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, well, yeah. we typically like to, uh, to end our podcast. So go ahead, Isaiah. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, I've really appreciated this. There's so many things that I, I took away that it's like, oh, these are good conversations with Dennis that, that I work with or Dennis that I'm talking with that, you know, you can point back to. So I really, really appreciate the, the honesty, the openness and some of the different things that we covered, but also like the human side of things. It's, it's always fun to connect with people and just hear stories because it is powerful. It is, you know, um, encouraging, like there's a lot of things to take away from this. So, um, I think when Nate was going to go is like, we like to like let guests always ask us questions at the end, if they have anything they want to ask. Um, so if there's anything that you want to ask either Nate or I, um, free game, I know, you know, Nate a little bit better than me, so you can ask him the hard questions and I'll just sit here and, 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 and smile. Right. <laughs> that was, that was too easy. Isaiah, that wasn't, that wasn't fair. So now, now you have to direct the hard question to Isaiah. Well, you know, I, you know, um, podcasting is new to me, you know, I'm kind of the old school dinosaur, um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting, it's, it's been kind of an interesting journey to just kind of share where I'm at. You know, I appreciate you guys listening and asking, asking good questions and stuff. I mean, I'm always willing to share with any of your listeners that, you know, if they want to email me or whatever, that's, that's the best way to get a hold of me, but I'll always answer them back. I, you know, there's, there's nothing to hide. 
it, this is just who I am and it's how I've developed this practice and how I work and you know uh, anything I can help with I, I I'm more than willing and you know Nate you've seen you've seen me in a, a you know a lecture setting and and some of those other things and it's not any different than having a conversation with you guys um, okay. so um, that I, I don't really have any specific questions to ask you guys at all other than it's been fun it's been a lot of fun and love to do it again. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thank you. So you threw it out there. So now I'm going to ask you to share it with everybody. What's sure. the email address if someone wants to reach out to you? Sure. How, how can people get a hold of you? It's uh, Robin, R-O-B-I-N, at SteelyDDS.com. That's S-T-E-E-L-Y-D-D-S.com. That goes direct to me. Awesome. Thank you very much. You're I almost welcome. feel like I, I don't know Isaiah. So I'm, Robin, I'm I'm new to the podcast thing as well. <laughs> Isaiah is our resident expert. <laughs> I should probably ask you, Isaiah. Can I lead out with a little bit of the uh, brass band of Battle Creek? <laughs> There's no rules in this. We can do whatever we want. We make the rules. It's an amazing group. All right, then I'm gonna I'm gonna. Robin, thank you for your time. It's been a lot of fun. We're going to throw it out to the uh, brass band of Battle Creek. Thanks to Industry Uncut listeners. We look forward to uh, seeing you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Dentistry Uncut. If you didn't know, now you know. Thank you for listening to today's show. The comments on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management and is also a registered investment advisor. Nathan Courtney is a practice transition consultant with Legacy Practice Transitions and a dental business advisor with Cloverleaf Advisory Group, where he's also an owner. The biggest compliment you can give is to share our podcast with a friend. Your reviews will help our listening audience grow. Apple Podcast is the primary platform for our listeners. If you have a few minutes and you love the show, please head over to Apple Podcast and give us an honest review and rating. For all of today's links and show information, head over to www.dentistryuncut.com. Again, that's www.dentistryuncut.com. There, you can also subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, so you won't miss out on the next episode. Thanks for listening.